You are listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of murder on Ireland's Eye. is a small island to the north of Dublin Bay, closest to the peninsula of Hoth and the long sandy strand of Port Marnock. It's a rocky outcrop with cliffs on one side, making a home for puffins and other seabirds. Visible from the shore is a little beach and a martello tower, a defensive structure of the 1800s, and the remains of a tiny church where once monks seeking isolation prayed. You can take a day trip out to the island by hiring a boat from Hoth Pier, and many people do, visiting the island for a few hours to picnic and explore. Monday, September 6th, 1852, saw visitors to the island. Michael and Patrick Nangle rowed a well-dressed couple out to the island. They'd brought them there twice before as well, in the week previous. This was William Burke Kerwin and his wife, Sarah Maria Louise, known as Maria. They were a well-off couple who lived in the beautiful Georgian area of Upper Marion Street in the city centre. William was an artist and made his money providing anatomical drawings to the medical profession, as well as restoring art. Maria was a keen reader and a strong swimmer, and the couple were staying at a boarding house in Hoth Village. They arrived on the island at half ten with supplies, swimming costumes and art gear, and readied themselves for an active day together. They asked the boatman to return for them at 8pm that evening, a little later than they were used to, but no matter and then the men returned to the pier to ferry more people out to the small island. In the week previous, the Kerwins had asked to be collected first at half-past six, and then at seven o'clock. Mr. Kerwin was sketching scenes on the island and views of Hoth, and the couple wanted to spend as much time as possible in leisure there. Another group, a family, visited the island that day, but they were collected at 4pm. The Kerwins at that time were still enjoying themselves, with Maria reading and William sketching away. The couple reminded the fishermen to return for them at eight that evening. After that, the two of them were alone on the island. When the Nangle men arrived back at the island with two other men in their boat, they were just on time at 8pm. By that stage, it was dark. The weather was very still, with little wind. Later, it would be recalled that there was so little breeze that the men could have gone about with a candle, without it being blown out by the wind. There was no sign of the Kerwins, and so they called out for them. The only response they heard was from William, from a bank above the sandy stretch. He needed a hand with his bags, and so Michael and Patrick headed up to help him. He made no mention of Maria or where she might be, 
and according to the men didn't seem bothered by the fact that she wasn't at the landing spot. William said he hadn't seen her for over an hour and a half. She had told him at about 6pm that she was off to bathe again, and William pointed out the direction he had seen her going, toward the seaward side of the island and away from the sandy beaches. Patrick and William Kerwin went off to look for her, and they were soon joined by Michael, with the Nangles giving out that they should not have to be off out looking for her at this hour. The other men waited at the boat in case she turned up. They walked along the beach and then crossed over to the other side of the island. There was a place there called the Long Hole, which was an inlet banked on either side by large cliffs. It became wider closer to the centre of the island you got, and water in the middle was divided by yet another outcropping of rock. Effectively, it was shaped like a Y. At high tide, the long hole fills with water, but when the tide is out, it's completely dry due to a bank of rocks that sat at the mouth of the inlet. At one point while searching this area, William stumbled in the dark, nearly falling down a cliff which seemed to underscore how stupid it had been to split up and let his wife wander around the island in the dark by herself. Patrick Nangle caught him before he fell. It was also Patrick Nangle who first noticed something white lying on a rock in one of the channels of the long hole. The tide was low and so the men approached it. It was Maria lying there, prone on her back, with her swimming costume hitched up beneath her arms, exposing her legs and chest. She had on bathing boots, but no swimming cap, and there was a wet sheet or towel beneath her. She was dead, with scratches around her face, and blood was coming out of her ears and genitals. Her body was still warm and was wet, though the tide was on its way out, and the closest water was at least two feet from her and receding. It was about 10pm when the body was found. The Nangles quickly covered the poor woman's body while William cried, leaning over the body of his wife. Then he asked the boatman to go find his wife's clothes. When they returned empty-handed, William disappeared off over a rock, and when he returned, he was carrying a shawl and a white sheet. He told the men that they would find her clothes over there where he had been, high above the water level on one of the cliffs. Sure enough, when the boatman looked, there were her garments, sitting on the rocks, now visible, though Patrick Nangle had completely missed them before. William decided to wait with his wife's body while the fishermen returned to the boat to row it around the island and retrieve the body. It took an hour to row the boat around the rocky island and to the creek at the long hole, Eventually, the four men pulled up the boat within about 20 feet of Mrs. Kerwin's body and what would become known as the Body Rock. Where her body lay was almost completely dry, and only one of the men got himself a bit wet as her body was lifted into the small boat and wrapped in a sail. By this stage, the Nangles, and particularly Patrick, had lost their patience with Mr. Kerwin and gave out to him when he got into the boat, he was in the way of the oars and should have done a better job taking care of his wife earlier in the day. If he had, then none of them would be having to do this awful task that evening. The boat was rowed back to Hoth and when they arrived at about half eleven, 
a horse and cart was got to bring Mrs. Kerwin's body back to the lodgings that she and her husband had been staying in. The local police sergeant was also called. Before Kerwin left, the Nangles asked for two pounds to compensate them for their efforts that evening. The original sum agreed on for their services had been three shillings. Three shillings works out at about 20 quid today, and two pounds is probably in and around the 300 euro mark. But Kerwin refused to pay them. Patrick Nangle was so annoyed, though, that he then wouldn't let the horse off until they had got something for what they had gone through that night, and Kerwin eventually handed over a pound, with the other pound promised to the men by Sergeant Sherwood, who had attended. Maria Kerwin's body was laid out at the boarding house, and Mr. Kerwin asked that its landlady, Mrs. Campbell, have the body washed. She got the help of two other women, who were quite used to dealing with drowning victims. One of the women asked, though, before she went to bed or work, if it wouldn't be better for them to wait until the police had examined the body and there had been an inquest. Mr. Kirwan snapped at her and said he didn't care what the police needed to do. He wanted this job done. And so the women obliged. When they went about their work, they noted a number of scratches on the face and chest of the body. One of Mrs. Kirwan's eyes was bloodshot, and they noted the blood from her ears and her vagina. They also noted that the blood was not the sort you would find with menstruation. In fact, the sail that Maria had been wrapped in was covered in blood after she was transported to the boarding house. This was not like the injuries of any drowning victim they had seen before. The next morning, the Dublin County Coroner, Henry Davis, arrived in Hoth to begin his investigations and inquest. He had received notification of the death from the police in Hoth, along with the information that the body had quote-unquote signs of violence on her and had been found lying on top of a sheet. When Davis examined the body, he concluded that the marks on her face were due to crabs and that there were no signs of violence. He said that, though he was not a medical person, his experience told him that this was a case of accidental drowning. He called for a doctor to come from Baldoyle, but he was unavailable, so Davis instead had a medical student carry out the physical examination of Miss Curran's body. Invariably, after a brief physical exam, the medical student deferred to Davis's conclusions and agreed that this was an accidental drowning. The inquest was held the very next morning in the boarding house itself. At the inquest, Pat and Michael Nangle gave evidence but never did get to tell them about the wounds and the blood that they had observed, and the strangeness that they saw in William being able to so quickly find his wife's clothing at a place that they had searched and found nothing. Pat Nangle was particularly upset that his testimony had been interrupted by William Kerwin, and that he wasn't able to describe the fact that when he found the body, the bathing sheet, a a sort of towel, he was sure was under the body, lying on the so-called body rock. Mr. Kerwin told the inquest that his wife had told him that she was going swimming at about 6pm and said she would be back at the landing point by the time the boat arrived. He said, quote, I did not see her alive afterwards and only found the body as described by the sailors, end quote. His bag of supplies and the sketches he made that day were produced showing he had drawn a view of the Dublin mountains from the Martello Tower area of the island with the colours of the sunset. 
the inquest concluded that the woman had been found drowned. No other possibility was thought of or brought up during the proceedings, and no one was questioned terribly closely about the circumstances of finding the body. The women who had tended to her body were not asked to give evidence, nor was the coroner informed that the body had been washed the night before. No post-mortem was ordered, and four days after the inquest, Maria Kerwin was buried in a sodden grave in Glasnevin Cemetery. But that is by far from the end of the story. The Kerwins had married 12 years previously. Initially, they lived at 6 Lower Merrion Street with William's father, Patrick, who was an art dealer. In 1850, they moved up the road to 11 Upper Merrion Street. While they had lived with Patrick Kerwin, there was some trouble with a neighbour, Ms. Maria Byrne, who was interfering in their relationship somehow. Maria Kerwin would eventually have to tell the woman to never come around again, and Maria Burke held this against Maria and William. Apparently, she hated William in particular. Another woman who only had malice in mind when it came to Mr. Kerwin was a Mrs. Bowyer. She claimed that William had stolen a collection of valuable paintings and books from her husband. The two women spread rumours about William, including that he had murdered his brother-in-law, Mr. Bowyer, and Mr. Byrne. As rumours began to fly around the posh parts of Dublin, on the 8th of September, an anonymous person visited the coroner after reports were published about Mrs. Kerwin's death. This person said that there was good reason to suspect that Kerwin had wanted his wife done away with. The coroner decided to bring that information to the police, and this information was enough to warrant another look at the paltry initial investigation. The women who had cleaned Mrs. Kerwin's body were interviewed, and they told the police of the state she had been in when they got to her, with visible injuries and bleeding. A number of people also gave evidence that they had heard screaming at about 7pm on the day of Maria Kerwin's death, coming from Ireland's eye. Some of these ear witnesses heard the screams from the shore, and one of them heard screams as he was on a boat that was passing nearby the island. The landlady of the boarding house, Mrs. Campbell, also told the police that she had heard arguments between the couple, and had once heard William Kerwin threaten his wife, and she told them that he had beaten her. The police were definitely of the mind that it was possible that William might have killed his wife, and they weren't long in finding a good reason why. After the funeral, a woman with a number of children was seen visiting and staying at the Kerwin's house in Upper Merrion Street. At the Kerwin's house in Upper Merrion Street. She lived in a house on Sandymount Avenue, but the address book listed a Mr. William Kerwin as the tenant there. When the landlord was questioned, he told the police that yes, William Kerwin was his tenant, but the house was mainly used by Teresa Kenny and her seven children. The two were a couple and were known locally as Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin. William had been living between two houses for a number of years. He had an entirely different family and home. And now he also had a fairly clear motive for murder. Sarah Maria Kerwin's body was exhumed 26 days after her initial burial. A post-mortem was conducted by a police surgeon, Dr. Hatchell. 
It was noted that she had been interred in a particularly waterlogged part of the graveyard. Water had managed to seep into her coffin, partially submerging her, and as such, her remains were not in as good a condition as they might have otherwise been. Despite that, he found that her lungs were healthy, but collapsed and filled with blood, congested, as he called it. He concluded that this was no drowning, and Mrs. Kerwin had more likely died of asphyxia due to constriction or compression. This had been a murder. On the 6th of October, William Kerwin was arrested, charged with murder, and remanded in custody to Kilmainham Jail. There was a Victorian version of a media frenzy, and rumours ran rife throughout the city, and so all of the court appearances before the trial proper were held in camera, that is, privately, with no public or press allowed. The press howled that this was an injustice, that it was their duty to report the facts of the case in the interests of justice. However, the court was more concerned with the nature of the rumours that were now being reported in the papers and that such information might prejudice the case against Mr. Kerwin. He was universally reviled in the city now, not really because of the accusations of murder, but for having had a long-term affair with another woman in the face of the strict Victorian morals of the day. On Wednesday the 8th of December, William Kerwin appeared before a two-judge sitting of the court at Green Street, and twelve rate-paying men of his peers. He pled not guilty to the charge of murder when put to him. The case was to be prosecuted by George Smiley, Queen's counsel, who, incidentally, had been Kerwin's neighbour on Upper Marion Street. He had stepped in for the Attorney General at the last moment to take the case when his superior was indisposed. Isaac Butt, who would later go on to be a leader in the Home Rule movement, defended Mr. Kerwin. The court service had done their best to ensure that there was plenty of space to accommodate the public and press who would be attending in their droves. To begin with, the opening statement for the Crown was delivered by Smiley. He pointed out that this was a case built on circumstantial evidence, but that circumstantial evidence was strong, and taken altogether proved that William Kerwin had murdered his wife. He told the jury that the two women in William's life knew nothing of one another until fairly recently, and so provided a motive and a reason for the timing. He also said that the medical evidence would show that Maria Kerwin had not died of drowning, but rather had suffered a violent death at the hands of her husband. On the first day of the trial, the judge and jury heard evidence from a draftsman who had been brought out to the island by police and shown all the various points of interest. He then prepared a map, plotting out all those points and describing them for the court. Next, the landlady from the boarding house took the stand. She told of how the couple had come to her in the summer to stay near to the seaside as a sort of holiday while the house in Marion Street was being redecorated. They rented one room from her, which served as a bedroom and a sitting room. Mrs. Campbell recalled that Mr. Kerwin was often gone into town and would return in the evening. For the first number of weeks, he only spent three or so nights a week in her house, but for the final six weeks or so, he slept there every night. She heard arguments between them and suspected that Mr. Kerwin had hit his wife. She recalled hearing him say to Maria, I'll finish you, and that Mrs. Kerwin once complained to her husband that she was black and blue from what he had done to her the previous night. 
Patrick Nangle was up next and he told the court about his work that day and the search that he undertook for Mrs. Kerwin. He described how they brought the boat around and had wrapped the body up in a sail and that there was a lot of blood left on it from an injury to Mrs. Kerwin's side and what he described as her seat and private parts. The scratches on her face, he said, looked like they had come from a pin, not from crabs like had been supposed at the coroner's inquiry. Michael Nangle gave evidence then. He related much the same story, but also noted that the weather had been very calm that day, despite some rain showers. There was little wind, and the water was relatively still. It would not have posed difficult swimming conditions. He told the court that it was unusual for someone to bathe at the long hole because the rocks were sharp and dangerous there. Another interesting thing he remembered was that Mr. Kerwin didn't mention his wife or the fact he hadn't seen her in over an hour until Michael Nangle himself asked where she was. A fisherman, Hugh Campbell, described how he had been standing on the east pier of Hoth that evening when he heard three faint cries coming from the direction of Ireland's Eye and thought that maybe someone had been stranded out there. He said it wasn't day, but nor was it dark. The sun was just beginning to get low in the sky. The evening had not yet fallen. About an hour and a half later, he saw the Nangle's boat go out to the island, presumably to collect someone. He told the court that it wasn't the first time he'd heard voices from the island, and it wasn't unusual that people could be heard from the island on the mainland. Thomas Larkin was one of the fishermen on the boat that had passed near to the island on their way back to Wicklow that evening. He said that he had heard a loud scream, followed by two more cries. At the time, he was the only one on the deck of the boat as he was steering. Evening was just beginning to fall as he and his crew passed the island. Alicia Abernathy, who lived next to the sea and whose house looked directly out onto Ireland's eye, heard three screams just after 7pm that evening. She had just checked the time with her neighbour and was waiting for her son to come back in from his fishing trip. The next day, when she heard that there had been a woman drowned in the long hole the day before, she remarked to Sergeant Sherwood that the scream she heard must have been that poor woman's. That day, the court also heard from Catherine Flood, who heard screams that night too and had seen Mrs. Kerwin bathing on previous occasions. She described the deceased woman as one of the most venturesome bathers she had ever seen. By all accounts, Mrs. Kerwin was a strong swimmer, and liked to push herself physically. The final witnesses before court that day were Anne Lacey and Catherine McGar, the women that the landlady had employed to wash Mrs. Kerwin's body. They both recalled that there were bleeding wounds on the body, froth on the mouth, and that her lips were swollen. They recalled that blood still flowed readily from the poor woman's ears while they washed her, and that they couldn't staunch the flow. The sail that had been brought in with her was covered in blood, and they both testified that the bloody discharge coming from her privates was not the quote-unquote natural sort you might expect. Catherine McGar remembered Mr. Kerwin snapping at her when she suggested that they might wait to treat the body until it had been examined. Interestingly, the two women remembered seeing Mr. Kerwin with wet boots, stockings and trousers. He had sat by the fire to dry them off. That was the end of testimony on the first day and the jury were ordered to stay together 
and were sent to a hotel that night. They were forbidden to take a drink while there, but it was the order of the court that they should be supplied with every possible comfort otherwise. The second day of the trial was begun with the evidence of Police Sergeant Sherwood, who described the events that he witnessed the morning after Maria Kerwin's body was found, both at the short inquest and afterwards when people approached him with further information. He also described how when he had called to 11 Upper Marion Street, he saw a woman he did not know and two children there. Presumably this was Teresa Kenny, and this evidence was meant to imply the affair that pretty much everyone knew about and bring it into evidence. That should have been wholly taken care of by the next witness, Teresa Kenny herself, but she failed to show, and remarkably, nothing at all was made of it by either side. Both prosecution and defence seemed willing to leave her off the stand altogether, and she was never compelled to appear. The landlord who owned the house that Teresa had lived in gave evidence as well and told the court that as far as he was concerned, he was renting to a Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin and their children. A cleaner for the family in Sandymount gave evidence that she remembered a quote-unquote strange lady calling at Teresa's house. Everyone listening to the proceedings presumed that this was Mrs. Kerwin, but the cleaner, Catherine Byrne, was not asked to describe the woman or what she wanted to the court. The medical student that had examined Mrs. Kerwin was also asked to give evidence. He told the court that he had made a general examination of the body. He noted the abrasions around her eyes, which he presumed came from rocks, and that her abdomen was firm, and he thought that maybe it was filled with water. He didn't notice any other marks or injuries on the woman. Dr. George Hatchell, who had performed the post-mortem after Miss Kerwin's exhumation, was called to the stand to give evidence. He told the court about how he had witnessed the coffin being brought up and the waterlogged state that it was in. His examination took place not far from the gravesite. He described in detail the external exam, examining the brain for injury to the base of the skull, the heart and the lungs, and Mrs. Kerwin's reproductive organs. He said that after his examination, he concluded that, given all the results, the congestion of the lungs, taken with the congestion at the vagina, along with her swollen lips and the scratches on her face, this was consistent with asphyxia caused by pressure exerted on her body. He said that Maria's death was not the result of quote-unquote simple drowning, but on cross he did admit that the state of her lungs was not inconsistent with the injuries that would result from drowning. The final witness for the Crown was the coroner, Mr. Hayes. He described arriving at the house next to the police station that morning and viewing the body. He said that it looked just the same as any body of a drowning victim that he'd seen before. He was sure he noticed little bite marks from crabs, which he had also seen before. He told the judge that he was unaware that the body had been washed and made ready for him. He said that after each witness had given evidence, he took down their statement and asked if it was correct or if they wanted to add or amend anything. Then he had each person sign it. He said that after the inquest, neither Nangle had said he wasn't heard out, and that both men had signed their deposition for him. Then Mr. Butt spoke for his defendant, opening his case. 
He said that Dr. Hatchell had been unable to say that the injuries he saw to the lungs were not consistent with drowning, nor could he propose a definite alternative method of death beyond compression. It was the assertion of Isaac Butt and the defence team that Mrs. Kerwin had died when she got into difficulty swimming, possibly after having an epileptic fit. The ear witnesses were also not to be trusted. Perhaps they had simply heard the men calling out for Mrs. Kerwin when they realised she was missing, he'd said. His client had gotten his shoes and the cuffs of his trousers wet when he sat next to his wife's body, awaiting the boat to be brought round. After all, didn't everyone present say that her feet had been dangling into a small pool with maybe a gallon of water in it? All of Mrs. Kerwin's injuries, he said, could have been caused by a fit, where she struck her face off a rock easily done in the long haul. Other injuries were consistent with animal activity. His client had no injuries on him whatsoever. What's more, William Kerwin had voluntarily stayed beside the woman he was supposed to have murdered for a full hour to protect her, which was something Butt argued that a guilty man would not do. He entreated the jury to not let Kerwin's affair colour their view of his client, Yes, William had had an affair and strayed beyond his marriage, but his wife had forgiven him, and they had moved on. Just because the man had committed adultery didn't mean that he had committed murder. But reminded the men on the jury, let him without sin cast the first stone. And so began the case for the defence. The first witness they called was of the expert variety, another medical doctor. Dr. Rind. He told the court that Mrs. Kerwin's injuries were consistent with those he would expect to see in a case of general drowning, or in a case where someone had a fit and then drowned. He said that some violence being perpetrated on her resulting in her death was less likely because there were no real wounds on her body. He said that it was possible that someone having eaten a large meal and then got into cold water, that a fit might follow that such an occurrence would explain the blood flowing from her ears and elsewhere, and that it was not unusual for someone beginning a fit to let out a scream either. The prosecution failed to point out that this whole scenario was irrelevant to the case, as, at the post-mortem, Mrs. Kerwin's stomach was empty and contracted. Nor did anyone attempt to ascertain at what time the Kerwins had eaten their packed meal, if at all. Mr. Smiley did, however, manage to ask if having a wet sheet covering a victim's mouth would result in the same sort of injuries. He was told by this witness that it was in fact possible. The next witness for the defence was also another doctor. The questioning was much the same again. Dr. Robert Adams said that from the physical description of the body, he would presume that the woman had died of drowning. He said it was possible that an epileptic fit had been the initial cause and would explain both the scream that was heard, along with the so-called congestion in the body, in the lungs and the genitals. In cross-examination, he gave evidence particularly in relation to the foam that had been seen on Mrs. Kerwin's lips by the women who had cleaned her body, the coroner and then Dr. Hatchell. He said that this froth may have been produced from a struggle in the water, where someone was thrashing about and taking in both water and air into the windpipe. According to Dr. Adams, the longer the struggle, the more froth would be produced, 
and the more there was, the longer it would remain. He also stated that he had never seen a case of accidental drowning that had resulted in bleeding from the vagina or ears, nor did he know of a case of a fatal epileptic fit producing those results either. Mr. Smiley delivered the closing for the Crown, going through each piece of evidence from the ear witnesses who he argued provided solid and matching circumstantial evidence of a scream coming from the island at the time of Mrs. Kerwin's death. He also pointed out that it was rather strange that if a scream had come before a fall or fit, that Mr. Kerwin himself made no mention of it. He was closest to his wife's location. Surely he would have heard it too. Smiley said that while he did not want to introduce scurrilous rumours into the case, the fact that Mr. Kerwin had a long-term affair and a family with another woman, and that Mrs. Kerwin had found out about it, provided a motive for murder. And finally, he told the jury that the medical people who had given testimony all said that they had never seen a case of accidental drowning that had produced bleeding such as suffered by Mrs. Kerwin on her death. The judge then summed up the case for the twelve men. He went through all the evidence and told the men that the case that had been presented to them was entirely circumstantial. There was no direct evidence, no witness who saw exactly what happened. He told them, quote, The strength and force of the evidence in a case like the present does not, however, depend on a single point or link, but upon a general connection of the entire. It derives its force from its continuity, end quote. It would be up to the jury to decide whether accidental drowning or having her head submerged forcibly by her husband was the cause of Mrs. Kerwin's death, given the totality of the evidence. The men would have to be sure, and if they weren't, they would have to give the prisoner the benefit of their doubt, and so acquit him. The jury retired at 7pm. The room that they were sent to was by any standards uncomfortable. There were only two chairs for the lot of them until they asked for more and some benches were moved in. They were also not allowed any real food or drink. It was less than an ideal circumstance in which to be debating a man's life. Forty-five minutes later, the judge summoned the jury back to see if they had reached an agreement. Unsurprisingly, they had not. They were nowhere near one, and so the judge sent them back again, telling them that he would be available until eleven o'clock that night to hear their verdict. At eleven, everyone returned again to the courtroom, and the jury told Mr. Justice Crampton that they still had not yet reached a verdict. The judge asked if there was a likelihood of a verdict that night, as if there was, he thought it would be his duty to remain on in the court. He asked, would the jury require anything of him before the morning? There was something that the jury wanted, presumably besides some dinner and drinks, and that was to hear the evidence of Dr. Adams once more. The judge had left his book of evidence behind and knew that the surgeon would be asleep at that hour, but said he would answer any questions they had from his recollection of the trial. He said that counsel on both sides could correct him if they wished. The jury wanted to know what Dr. Adams would attribute the damage to Mrs. Kerwin's body to. Justice Crampton told the jury that as far as he could recall, 
Adams had said that the congestion in the lungs and elsewhere had been due to simple drowning or forcible drowning. The jury asked for clarification. The appearances, as they called them, could be due to simple drowning, according to Mr. Adams. Yes, said the judge. The foreman then asked what importance the jury should attach to such evidence, and the judge told him that all of the medical experts had given substantially the same evidence, though Adams and Rind had not seen the body. The jury retired for another 15 minutes and then returned with their verdict. William Burke Kerwin was found guilty of the murder of his wife. The trial had lasted two days and deliberations less than five hours. His fate was sealed. Before sentencing could take place, Isaac Butt made an application to the court for appeal on the grounds that the evidence submitted that Kerwin had lived with another woman was inadmissible and prejudicial to his client. He also queried whether the verdict had been based on the testimony of Dr. Adams, who had in fact appeared for the defence, and that the judge had not allowed him to answer the question of whether he agreed with Dr. Hatchell's cause of death. At the time, the only way to appeal was to have a case referred by a judge to the court for Crown Cases Reserved, which would deal only with points of law. It did not allow a retrial, but could reverse a judgment. The Court of Appeal would not be established in England until 1875 and in Ireland until 1877. No such appeal was made at the time, and so the court procedure continued. William Burke Kerwin was given the opportunity to speak. Rather than make a plea of his innocence or profess his love for his wife or explain some of the evidence that had made him look so suspicious, like having his wife's body washed the very night she died, he decided to give a long-winded description of events on the island that evening. He went through the search he and the Nangles had conducted through to finding his wife's body. He was calm and spoke in a clear, firm voice, reflecting the fact that he had remained interested but entirely composed for the duration of the trial. Before he donned the black cap, the judge had a few words for William Kerwin. He spoke about how Mrs. Kerwin had been a young and healthy woman, struck down in her prime by the person who was duty-bound to care for her, the person who was to be her protector. Not only that, but he had betrayed her by seeking a relationship outside their marriage, which ultimately led to the murder. He warned that Kerwin was to be an example of what can happen when people disregard what they are duty-bound to do. William Burke Kerwin was then sentenced to hang. In response, he told the court and swore before God that he had had no hand act nor part in the death of his wife, and that he had never treated her unkindly. In the end, his sentence was commuted by the Lord Lieutenant, the Queen's representative in Ireland, to transportation for life. That was, however, not the end of the matter, yet again. A prominent solicitor in Dublin, John Knight Boswell, took up William's cause. He believed that Kerwin was entirely innocent of the crime, and that, in fact, there had been no crime. He decided to put together a report of the case, presenting his defence and rebuffing the evidence presented in court as wrong or misleading. He went right back to the beginning, saying that the accusations of murder arose from scurrilous rumours, began by Mrs. Byrne and Mrs. Bowyer. 
They, according to Boswell, were vindictive women out to destroy the Kerwins, and Miss Bowyer was also possibly a bit mad. He said that it was these rumours which set in motion the investigation into a so-called but non-existent murder, and a campaign against Kerwin began. He also said that this campaign was cemented further by the local Catholic priests in Hoth, and his opinion that Mrs. Kerwin had been murdered. He said that the local people who were witnesses to the events followed the priest's lead and made statements that would be consistent with this. Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin had a mixed marriage, which at the time in Ireland referred to one in which a Catholic and a Protestant had married. Maria Kerwin was from a Roman Catholic background. It's quite possible that there is a prejudiced or biased foundation to Boswell's interpretation of the evidence, he being himself from the Protestant community. Boswell went through each piece of evidence presented, from William's clothing to the height of the tides at the long hole. He said that there was no way that people had heard Maria Kerwin's screams from the long hole. He said that the painting that Kerwin had made that evening showed that he had been at the Martello Tower well past seven, and that therefore he could not have been across the island murdering his wife. If he wasn't painting, how else could he have captured the sunset colours over Hoth that evening? He also said that the medical evidence was wholly unsatisfactory. Dr. Hatchell had examined the body 31 days after Maria's death, and the body's condition could not tell him much of anything due to the level of decomposition present. Further, if there was any evidence at all, it was consistent with accidental drowning, he said. Attached to the report were statements from Teresa Kenny, who claimed that both she and Mrs. Kerwin knew of each other, almost from the start of the Kerwin's marriage. This could not therefore be a motive for murder. She had tried to give evidence at court, but firstly could not get in due to the crowds, and then secondly, due to a cut on her thumb, was taken seriously ill with fevers and lockjaw, and she ended up confined to bed for two full days. In summary, relying on both evidence presented at trial and statements he gathered after the fact, Boswell concluded that Mrs. Kerwin had suffered from fits. She had gone swimming at the long hole in order to ensure some privacy which was lacking at the sandy part of the island. She had taken a fit, fallen into the water and thrashed about, hitting her face. The congestion or blood that was found in the post-mortem, he concluded, was consistent with this sort of protracted drowning and also explained the screams heard out in Hoth. Boswell said it was known and common for someone taking a fit to begin with a scream, and it was possible that she could have screamed again while struggling in the water. Maria Kerwin had drowned sometime while the tide was still in, providing sufficient depth for her to be swimming in the area, and for her to subsequently have drowned. As the tide receded, her body had been caught up on the so-called body rock, and the waves had pulled her swimming costume about and up over her. Boswell also concluded that Patrick Nangle must have been mistaken about the sheet being beneath her body on the rock, and the marks on her body were the result of sea life, as otherwise there was absolutely no sign of violence or struggle. Furthermore, William Kerwin had no visible injuries on him, indicating that he had been involved in a struggle. It had all been a tragic accident. The argument put forth by Dr. Boswell became widely accepted in the wake of the trial, as the gossip mills kept churning out new stories, and eventually the consensus was that Kerwin was in fact an innocent man. 
that was, in polite and mainly Protestant company at least, within the social set that Kerwin himself was from. Strangely enough, though, there was yet another medical opinion of what had happened on the island that day, and one that very well could have been presented by the Crown, though for whatever reason they decided not to call this expert forth. It was of Dr. Thomas Gagan. He was a professor of medical jurisprudence at the Royal College and held the chair of forensic science. He had studied and given medico-legal opinions in many trials, and he was well respected in his field. Not only had Dr. Gagan been present throughout the trial to hear the various testimonies, he had been taken out to the scene at the long hole, both to see the geography of the place and to observe the tide marks. It was his firm conclusion that Maria Kerwin had been murdered. He asserted that the medical evidence presented at trial from the post-mortem was not at all consistent with a natural accidental drowning. Congestion of the lungs and genitals were associated with asphyxia, often by compression. He noted that in women who had been hanged, bleeding from the genitals was common, so much so that often straw would be placed beneath the gallows prepared for a woman. He also said that if Mrs. Kerwin had been swimming in the long hole, with the tide in so much as to provide enough depth to do this, her body would have been carried out to sea rather than find itself caught up on the body rock. If she had fallen in shallow water, which would account for the scratches on her face, how did it come about that she was then found on her back lying on the rock? Dr. Gagan stated that the only explanation for both the physical evidence left on Mrs. Kerwin's body and seen in the post-mortem along with the scene of her death was that she had been attacked by her husband who had partially drowned her partially constricted her airways by possibly using the towel and also by crushing her chest. The struggle had been violent, but would not have necessarily resulted in any visible signs of violence that night. It's not clear why Dr. Gagan's report, or the doctor himself, made no appearance at the trial, but he was thoroughly familiar with every aspect of the case. His report is reproduced nearly in full in Michael Sheridan's book on this case, Murder at Ireland's Eye, which I have relied on as a main source in this episode. The book reproduces much of the trial transcript as well as Dr. Boswell's report, and this was invaluable for the writing of this episode. In the end, William Burke Kerwin was not transported. There were rumours that he had been sent off to Bermuda, and was happily living in paradise, which angered those who believed in his guilt. But instead of Bermuda, he ended up in a prison in Cork, Spike Island, where he served 26 years of hard labour. Theresa Kenny had moved to the United States soon after the trial. In a moment of mercy, judges found that she was to be the beneficiary of William Burke Kerwin's estate in order to provide for his many children. William Kerwin didn't die in prison, though. He was released after those 26 years. But what became of him after that is a little less clear. And like many aspects of the story, it's wrapped up in rumour. He's thought to have travelled to America, where he met up again with Teresa Kenny, and there were sightings of him in Dublin. It's possible that he worked there as an artist for a while to gather up the funds he required for his passage abroad. It's thought that William Kerwin died only a few years after his emigration. This case seems to have been Victorian Ireland's version of making a murderer, 
and at the time it wasn't at all clear whether justice was served or not. But in the end, the trope is once again proved. Most of the time, the husband did it. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. A big thanks this week to our newest supporter on Patreon, Raven, and to Carmel O'Dwyer, who has upped her pledge. You guys are so generous, and I appreciate it so much. My patrons keep this podcast running and help me continue to create content for you. If you'd like to help support the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. There are perks and bonus content up for grabs. Thank you also to some recent five-star Apple podcast reviews, this time from the UK iTunes store. Thank you to Alan Foz for your five stars. I'm glad you came across us too. Thank you to Charlie Donnelly and also to Belfast Beats. Thank you so much, guys. I really do appreciate all your feedback, and it really does help the podcast out. Next time, we'll be looking at a totally senseless crime in the west of Ireland that saw a former student kill a now elderly teacher from his past. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Of a case of a fatal epilepsy.